0: Listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Josh Toll from King & Spalding. Josh is based in Washington, D.C., and we discussed his career, his time as a public defender, his experiences directing a law firm pro bono program, and different ways to measure pro bono success. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for joining us on the pro bono happy hour. Welcome.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Let's jump right in. To begin, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got to King and Spalding?
1: Sure. Well, my name is Joshua Toll. I'm pro bono counsel at King and Spalding. Um, as far as my background, I wanna, uh, I'm want i a proud native of Baltimore, Maryland. want to get that plug in for my hometown. Uh, nice. yeah, 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 yeah. And a graduate of Cornell University and Harvard Law School. Um, I've lived in DC for 19 years, I really love it here, it's it's my home. Um, Prior to working at King & Spalding, I was a public defender for four years in the Maryland state system, which was really a great experience, I really can't say enough good things about it, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but anyway, two years in the Baltimore city, um, and two years in Rockville. And I've been at King & Spalding for 10 years, um, and I've been in charge of the pro bono program since 2013 and we are a full service law firm. We started in Atlanta, Georgia and we now have 10 offices in the United States and then 10 more offices internationally and um, pro bono is a really important part of what we do. Um, We have a very high participation rate across the firm all levels and our pro bono program is really geared towards assisting persons of limited means um, with a particular focus on vulnerable populations such as disabled veterans and um, victims of domestic violence as examples.
0: So we are for sure gonna drill into your work as pro bono counsel and the pro bono program at the firm, but let's take a little step back and talk about your work as a public defender and how that has been a useful perspective or given you a leg up in your current position.
1: Great question. Um, As I said, I had a really great experience as a public defender. I actually really love talking about it because it was such a great part of my career. Um, I really feel like, you know, looking back on it, it taught me so many things that are invaluable lessons, not only for my career, but also that really do directly apply to running a pro bono program at a large law firm. And, you know, really as a public defender, you have a lot of cases, obviously, you know, we always hear about overworked public defenders, and I was constantly having to deal with a really heavy caseload. But, you know, what's so great about it is that each one of your clients is a vibrant human being with his or her own story. And you know, my goal as a public defender was to practice client-centered advocacy, to really make sure I went the extra mile to hear my client's story, their whole story, and to investigate and litigate all possible defenses, and ultimately to try to look at the big picture holistically and make sure I'm helping my client not just with their immediate legal problem, which would be whatever they were charged with, but also help them kind of deal with the big picture. If they were charged with a drug um, offense and they were a drug addict, let's try to get them some drug treatment. So the way that I've applied that to King and Spalding is really the same approach. Um, We really pour everything into our pro bono cases, um, all of our resources, all of our legal talent, into each pro bono case, um, whether it's big or small. And one of the things that's really been important to me, you know, as a public defender, you're often facing long odds, difficult cases, uphill battles, and you learn to persevere in those circumstances. It's really important to not kind of give up and to be resilient. And all of those qualities are important for a pro bono program, obviously. And one of the things that's been really meaningful for me at King & Spalding is the fact that, you know, we have a tradition that I've really tried hard to perpetuate of, really not being afraid to take on the tough cases from a pro bono perspective. Um, you know, we represent, we do a lot of death penalty work, for example, which is really meaningful to me. And, and those are difficult cases, um, and I'm really proud of the fact that we've taken those on.
0: What attracted you to the public defender office and how did you end up there?
1: You know, um, I, I really um, had it in my head for a long time. Um, at, at Harvard, um, I took the Public Defender Clinic, which was um, run by Professor, Professor Charles Ogletree, who's really one of my pro bono heroes, uh, so you've anticipated one of my uh, further responses. But, Spoiler um, alert, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But Professor Ogletree really taught me so much, and that was a clinic that I took in my third year of law school, and I really felt like that was probably my favorite thing that I did in law school, and, and he, he's the one that really... Uh, introduced uh, the concept of um, client-centered advocacy and really empowering your client to make his or her decisions based on legal advice that you're giving them and treating each client as a person. I think that's so important. You know our system is so overloaded with cases and sometimes you can think of a person almost as a statistic and Professor Ogletree really led the charge and he obviously was in charge of PDS back in the day and he has a wonderful resume and he's been fighting this battle for so long and so taking that um, clinic Really, kind of implanted the idea, um, and you know, I grew up with really, um, you know, liberal parents, and then I, the the idea of being a public defender had always kind of been attractive to me, um, and so it was kind of in the back of my head, and I had such a great time at that clinic, and I started my career at a different law firm, but I, I never really lost sight of the goal to be a public defender, and, and I got to a point where it kind of made sense to make that tradition, and and you know, even putting aside the fact that I really believe so strongly in the right to, you know, everyone to get a defense, it's also just a great way to get trial experience. And I love being in court. And, you know, being a public defender, um, you're just in court all the time, obviously. And I tried so many cases. I tried a bunch of um, bench trials and some jury trials. And, um, that, that experience really was really helpful for what I'm doing now.
0: I think we'll talk about that in a little bit too, right? Sure. S- client services, yes. but also skill development. Right. I feel like public defenders, criminal justice system is having a moment. Right? It's it is. it's it is really having a, a yeah. spotlight part of our culture emphasis on moving the needle, mm-hmm. and I'm curious because so I don't know if it's proportionally so much, but certainly it it percolates up, and I think the death penalty work that you talked about resonates that there is a fair amount of criminal justice work in the King and Spalding pro bono docket. Yes. So I don't know if that's by chance or your background or it coalesces nicely with the interests of the lawyers at the firm, but that was an interesting coincidence, yeah, right? That you I, had that in your background. I, and
1: yeah, I completely agree. It's really all of the above, you know, One of the things that attracted me to the firm was the vibrancy of the pro bono program, including the fact that there were a bunch of lawyers before I even got there that worked on death penalty. And so, you know, when I came as a former public defender, I obviously wanted to continue that work. And, um, you know, we've recently been really focusing on the clemency project. And we've really worked hard. We have about fifty lawyers firm wide at King & Spalding, if not a little bit more than that, working on the clemency project. And as you know, these are um, nonviolent drug offenders in the federal system who most of our clients are serving life without parole. You know, for a nonviolent drug offense. And you know, when I tell people who are non-lawyers about that, many of them are shocked to hear that that's even possible. You know, you think life sentence, you think, okay, that's a murder charge. But life sentence for nonviolent drug offense, uh, it does strike a lot of people, in my experience, as too harsh. And I'm very happy to report that we've um, obtained clemency for eight of our clients so far. So we're really happy about that. Um, eight of our clients that, that are, I think six or seven of them, I can't remember, were serving life. Um, so the large majority of the eight serving life without parole. And they're now going to get to go home to their families. To rebuild um, their their lives, and we're really excited about that. And that's another way that we've kind of perpetuated the criminal justice work.
0: There are many, many more people in the queue, so yes. we we hope the program will keep going. Could you just for people who maybe aren't super familiar with the clemency project right. give just sort of a little elevator backgrounds yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. On-
1: I, I love talking about it because it's such a great example of how different nonprofits can come together. And basically, the background is that. President Obama and the Justice Department basically invited the project. They, they, to their credit, made a public announcement of recognition that because our drug laws have changed, um, the guidelines are no longer mandatory, the crack powder cocaine disparity has been changed. A lot of things have changed. And that means that, and and DOJ charging policies have changed. And to, to Eric Holder's credit, before he left, he issued a memo to change the way that they charge the sentencing enhancements, which lead to life without parole. And they're now using that much more sparingly, which I obviously think is a big step in the right direction. And so that means that a lot of people are serving sentences that if if evaluated today would be much lower. And so what happened is that a bunch of great nonprofits like the American Bar Association, um, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, ACLU, you know, got together and they created this project. And it's such an ambitious project. I mean, they've surveyed all of the inmates in the Federal Bureau of Prisons who have served at least 10 years, which is one of the requirements. And then they put together this massive database. They trained law firms. They doled out the cases. They provided mentorship. They've answered questions. They've given us feedback. I mean, we obviously couldn't do it without them. And um, so it's been a great collaboration. And obviously, many big law firms, in addition to King & Spalding, are working on Clemency Project cases. And I have to say, it's really been a great experience for my colleagues because you know many of them didn't have criminal experience before this and um, the training has been great and it really gave my colleagues a chance to understand someone's life story all the mistakes they have made but you also see because they've served 10 years in jail and one of the criteria is a good prison record and we've seen some clients that really have turned their lives around and these are people inmates who are volunteering to serve on um, inmate suicide watch to help their depressed um, fellow inmates And they're doing a lot of great things. They've educated themselves, they've become mentors, they've written books. And um, to, to get a chance to really delve into someone's life history that way and to marshal all that positive information to say, hey, this person deserves a second chance, it's been very meaningful for my colleagues.
0: Let's talk about your time at King & Spalding. Yes. And how you spend your time. Yes. Um, When did you become pro bono counsel? Right.
1: So I've been in charge of the pro bono program since 2013. And my time is really a mix, which which I love. I I love the mix. Um, Obviously, because I'm responsible for um, the program at, at pro bono program in all of our offices worldwide, there's kind of a lot coming at me and so I have to kind of make sure on a week-in week-out basis that I'm covering the ground but basically it's a combination of first I'm networking with outside nonprofits and legal service providers you know some of which I've already mentioned to make sure that we have the right pro bono opportunities um, that any office. and you know we work with so many great um, nonprofit partners you know in Atlanta we work with Atlanta Legal Aid Atlanta volunteer lawyers And um, that's a big part of what I do, is just trying to make sure that we have the right opportunities. And then once we have a set of opportunities, I spend a lot of time just promoting the pro bono program internally, you know, making sure that my colleagues are aware of what the opportunities are. And I also, you know, just do a lot of internal relationship building to get their feedback on do the right opportunities exist? Are there other areas that they want us to go into? So that's a big part of it. And then a big part of what I do, which is totally separate from what I've just mentioned, is I get involved uh, supervising, particularly in D.C., where I I sit in D.C. I get involved supervising and mentoring my junior colleagues um, on pro bono cases. And that's a really great part of what I do. I love doing that. It's like I'm a coach and they're the players and I'm giving them feedback and... You know, I'm able to thankfully rely on, on all the great trial experience that I got as a public defender and I've been in so many situations and you name it, I've, I've been there. And, um, you know, getting to do that and to kind of kind of share the joy of pro bono um, really is a great part of what I do. And then finally, fourthly, I do um, my own pro bono work. You know, I, I've always um, said and, and, and the firm is very cool with the fact that while I love um, mentoring my junior colleagues i also want to do my own pro bono work as well because i, I don't want to just be administrative i want to, i love the pro bono work that's why you know they chose me for this role so i have my own pro bono clients and some of those are team efforts i'm not always solo um but but it's important for me to maintain that contact with actual clients i took on some of the clemency cases myself for example which i've really enjoyed working on and i actually just got a call from one of my successful cases today And he's now been um, transferred to the halfway house. And so he's so happy to get out of um, prison. I mean, it's such a great feeling for him. So that's kind of the the lay of the land, generally.
0: And do you still maintain a um, commercial practice? I have a small
1: commercial practice, um, but two thirds of my time is pro bono. And the commercial practice that I have is white collar criminal defense, government investigation. So again, I feel like I'm sort of drawing on my public defender experience because I'm albeit a different type of work it's, it's criminal defense which I love
0: So we all have way too much on our to-do list yes, than we often sure. are able to get to so what if you had more time would you be spending it doing
1: Yeah I'd say one of the things that um, I wish I could do more of is is you know when we, conclude a pro bono case, um, I really want to keep in touch with the clients just to see how they're doing and sometimes I do but I'm not always great about that because you just move on to the next case and there's so many current cases that I have to make sure I'm doing the right things on that I don't always get a chance but you want to hear how someone's doing years later and that's something that if I had more hours in the day, I'd love to be able to spend more time checking in with past clients uh, to see how they're doing.
0: I think one thing the pro bono community in general struggles with is how we measure and document the impact of our work. That's right. So doing something like that would would really boost those efforts, Mm -hmm. but it never rises to the top 10 of our uh, (laughs) ability to execute on. I also think sometimes you feel like "Mm, the relationship is concluded. Do I... How will I be received? Like, sure. do they really want to, I mean, they well, moved on, we moved on, maybe, you know, clean they, break sometimes. They will
1: circle <laughs> back with us sometimes if they have, like, another problem yeah. or yeah. something happens. Yeah. So sometimes I think, hey, if I haven't heard from them, that's probably a good sign, but you never know for sure unless yeah. you really reach out.
0: Yep. Now, are there things that you do that you wish you could be doing less of?
1: Great question. I think any pro bono counsel or pro bono partner would tell you that there are various internal administrative things that we need to do, uh, whether that be you know things like the pro bono budget that certainly are important, but not as much fun as working with actual clients. Yep.
0: And- I would say, for some people, it's surveys. And we are very mindful of that, being a survey survey, issuer of trying to not bombard people. Spend a lot of time
1: answering surveys. (laughs)
0: Let's talk a little bit about the overall governance structure of the firm's pro bono program no one can run it alone right and you have allies and other leaders who help how's the program structured and who helps you run right. this right yeah awesome great program. question
1: so we have myself um, and then we have um, i have a community affairs director named Linda Parrish in Atlanta who does a really great job and
0: who has she's, been around a long time she has, she has, so she's,
1: it's great she's got yes. such great historical knowledge she's a non-lawyer but she helps me with the various administrative aspects of the program and I really couldn't do it without her. And then I have a firm-wide pro bono committee, um, which is made up of myself, Linda, and then one partner from each office, in some cases two partners in some of the offices, who are the local pro bono chairs. And their role is to really publicize the opportunities in each office and to kind of be my people on the ground in those offices. And they help me. We have uh, quarterly phone calls and they help me the pro bono committee. They help me with setting policy, you know, making decisions. We, we consult by email as needed. They help me roll out new programs, publicize trainings, um, work on ways that we can get people excited about pro bono. And then we also have local pro bono committees in some of the larger offices where the people who are really interested in pro bono and want to kind of take a leadership role, we, can, we meet as a local office to talk about what the opportunities are, what can we be doing more of, et cetera. So it's really a great structure, and and like you said, I could not do it without all of the help of all of the lawyers and non-lawyer professionals that are helping me in all the various offices.
0: Yeah, as, as firms have evolved and grown, we've got to look to empower and broaden the bench. It's just impossible if you just look at scale, but also it improves buy-in, right? right? More people feel invested in the program. Programs are fragile when they're only about one leader and one person. Do not want to be
1: a one-man army.
0: Not effective. So I think we've danced around this um, for a while, and it may be a historical legacy, or it may still be the case, but I think um, for many, we think of King and Spalding, and we think of Atlanta.
1: Sure.
0: <laughs> so maybe that's still true, maybe it isn't. But how um, how is your experience running the pro bono program, not from Atlanta, sure. from D.C.?
1: Yeah, great question. It has actually been remarkably seamless, um, thanks to all the assistance I'm getting from Linda and my pro bono chair for the holiday in Atlanta. Um, Certainly, I travel to Atlanta a lot. Um, I like to joke that Atlanta is my home away from home, so I've gotten to know the city quite well, which has been great to get to experience uh, another city. Um, So I go there a lot um, for meetings, and I do a lot of video conferences. But you know, a lot of what I do is interact with my colleagues by email or phone calls. So I'm obviously able to do that remotely. So it's kind of a patchwork, but I'm, I'm able to make it work, and I think it's been manageable.
0: I think it's an interesting case study, mm-hmm. um, because in many respects, people struggle with sometimes there's the home office or the sure. main office because of history, because of numbers, because of size, and everywhere else. And by having leaders in, everywhere else, it really invests the rest of the yeah. firm to feel part of the enterprise. I think it's and great. I think it's an interesting, perhaps a quirk, but could pay a lot of dividends, you know, unintentional. Definitely. Unintentional dividends. So what are some of your favorite tactics for motivating attorneys? What, what are your best pitches for getting people involved in pro bono?
1: Right. Um, so I always sell pro bono within the firm as a win-win. That's kind of the way I describe it. Um, you know, it's a win in that giving back is the right thing to do without question. Um, and also it feels great to help someone um, with an issue that's so important in their lives. You know, the stuff that we deal with is so fundamental And I think back recently, actually a few weeks ago, um, we had a case from the D.C. Bar Pro Bono Center, which is one of our main pro bono partners, they're really great, and um, we took a case with kind of a short, short deadline, because it was a really an urgent case, and um, we had a hearing in D.C. Superior Court in a family law case, and we were able to obtain child custody for one of our clients who was a victim of abuse um, after a contested hearing, and she was literally crying tears of joy after the hearing, and I could just tell from the look on the associate's face how meaningful it was to him. Um, he had worked really hard on the case, and his work paid off. And that's the type of experience that you can have in pro bono. And and I, I really, that that's the first win is, is just that it's it's a, it's the right thing to do, and it's a great experience. You're helping someone, but but secondly, it's a win for the associate because. They're able to get tremendous professional development opportunities from pro bono. Um, you know, we, we had an associate argue a case in the Supreme Court, uh, which we're really excited about a pro bono case, uh, and, and talk about the ultimate uh, professional development opportunity arguing in the Supreme Court. Um, and, 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 you know, we have these types of opportunities um, for associates. We've had Day in, day out, you know, we have associates take depositions, argue motions in, in federal and state court, and go to trial, like go to contested trials. Um, and those are just great opportunities for our litigation um, colleagues to be able to build skills that's you're looking to help them in their career. You know, they could be in a billable matter and a partner could say, have you ever taken a deposition before? And they can say, well, yeah, I took, just took three depositions and it's great for them to be able to leverage that. And, and it's not just litigation, of course, you know, our, our corporate associates are drafting agreements and pro bono, getting a ton of client experience, negotiating things. So, it's really a win from that perspective as well. And it's also a way to get to deal with really interesting issues that they don't really normally get to always confront in the billable work. I mean, we have a ton of, obviously, constitutional issues in pro bono cases and... You know, in this clemency project, we're um, geeking out on the federal sentencing guidelines, which has been really fun. Uh, to, so, so to be able to confront some, some novel issues um, is also a great part of it. So I, I always just basically sell it on the win-win, and I, I think that message has been effective.
0: It's a big tent. There are a lot of reasons to do pro bono. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> and, and they ebb and flow over time, and I think over a person's career. So I like to think about what, young associates want and need can be different from junior partners mm-hmm. and up and you know and folks kind of phasing down their commercial practice right, and and right. having time and interest of a different scale so it's ebbing and flowing and there are a lot of reasons and whatever moves the needle i think it's all good <laughs> yeah and let me
1: just put in a pitch on that point because we have two retired partners in our atlanta office that are really crushing it uh, one of them, is Lane Dennard, is a retired partner who's former military a veteran himself, and he basically started a clinic at Emory Law School to assist disabled veterans. And this is something that he's doing as a retired lawyer, and he's done such a great job. The clinics won all kinds of awards, and they're just helping so many veterans. And then my predecessor, Bill Hoffman, is now retired, retired partner at King and & Spalding, and he's still doing a ton of amazing asylum work. And to see those guys, you know, they, they, they're not just going to kind of rest on their laurels. They're still fighting the pro bono fight. It's really inspirational.
0: It is, and there's plenty of time to golf, but there's time yes. to do other they, things, they do it. too. And I, they're such role models because when other people see people... You're living your passion. I mean, right. these are causes that they care so much, about. so much about, and they are amazing models of uh, behavior that then flows, you know, kind yeah. of up and down the food chain. And in addition to being community-wide examples, it, it goes beyond, right. you know, right. the firm. So that's amazing. Um, I know we've talked already about some examples, um, people you've obtained clemency for, um, people crying tears of joy, and it's always hard to pick and choose, but do you have other examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you, either that you have worked on or you've coached up? Yes, absolutely, I do. I actually have
1: a lot, but in the interest of time, I'll try to limit it to a few. Um, The first um, was a death penalty case that I worked on a few years ago, um, we do a lot of, of federal habeas work, as I've mentioned. A lot of it's with the ABA Death Penalty Representation Project, which is a great organization. we we'll have definitely put in a plug for them, to anyone out there listening. Uh, they're a great organization, and there's so many um, habeas clients in need of representation. And a lot of people don't realize that you don't have a right to a lawyer on habeas, you know, which is really crazy given how important it is. But so anyway. I'll, I'll
0: remind people that Esther Lardent and Tammy Taylor worked at that project. That's right. And out of their work there was the launch of the law firm project in PBI because they were so frustrated, right, at placing these cases. Right. Cold calling yep. <laughs> lawyers yep. that there there had to be a better way. So it sort of all comes around. But yeah. <laughs> right.
1: So this case um, was a case where the court appointed lawyers really had neglected their obligation to conduct a meaningful investigation into our client's life by way of mitigation before the trial. You know, our client had been horrifically abused, as you see in so many death penalty cases, um, physically, mentally, sexually abused as a child. And they discovered very little of that evidence and presented almost none of it to the jury who was gonna decide whether our client lived or died. And we were able to convince a federal judge to hold an evidentiary hearing. And we presented the testimony of the brother and the sister who witnessed multiple episodes of abuse and it was so unforgettable. Their testimony was so riveting. There was literally not a dry eye in the courtroom. It was so powerful. And that testimony, the jury never got to hear. And so we were extremely gratified when the Federal District Court judge issued a very thoughtful opinion agreeing with us that our client had in fact received ineffective assistance. However, uh, we knew that it was premature to celebrate because we knew that the other side was going to appeal, which they did. And we ran into difficulty on appeal due to a new Supreme Court case, uh, Cullen versus Penholster, um, that restricted when federal judges can hear new evidence. And it was really like losing on a technicality, which is extremely frustrating because ultimately the appeals court found that that the district court judge never should have considered the evidence offered by the brother and the sister despite how compelling it was I mean talk about form over substance but that's so often what happens in habeas and ultimately after a hard-fought battle including a clemency application to the governor we lost the case which was really difficult and very disappointing but what really stands out to me is really two things First of all, how happy our client was that, that we had really fought for him. Contrary to his previous lawyers, we really fought for him and you know, we, we represented him for over five years and it was a hard fought battle the whole time. So I really felt like we had vindicated the legal profession in his eyes and the eyes of his family. And second, you know, we saw such a change in him over time. We really saw so many redeeming qualities in him emerge and it's so disappointing that our system is really not set up to consider all of that information. And I felt like even if you're in favor of the death penalty, which I'm not, but even if you are in favor of it, hopefully it's confined to the absolute worst of the worst, uh, which this client definitely wasn't. Um, and, and so that was hard. But I, I talked before about resiliency, and as hard as it was to lose that case, we look back and as hard as it was to say goodbye to my client by the way extremely hard you know we look back and we feel like we did everything we could um and you know from a personal perspective as hard as that was as disappointing as it was you know my response is i'm just going to take that energy and channel it to other cases i think that's so important but you know the experience really taught me um, how difficult it is um, but how important it is to work on habeas cases. Um, they're always going to be an uphill battle. and I, I do feel as though the law has evolved to a point where it's it's swung too far and habeas is too difficult to win. Um, but 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 it is still possible to win a habeas case under the right circumstances and we', now moved on to fight other habeas battles. Um, But on a happier note, I also think back to a disability case that I handled um, where I was able to get disability benefits for my client. Um, She suffered from major depression and had been sexually assaulted um, as a child and was really never able to fully heal from that traumatic experience, suffered from debilitating flashbacks. And the victory that we received not only meant that she would be able to put a roof over her head, pay her bills, but she really saw it as validation, you know, as the government in the form of the administrative judge of social security acknowledging that, that what she suffered from was real and, the, and that was really powerful. And one last thing is um, at King and Spalding were litigating a case to challenge the delays that um, veterans are facing. Um, when they appeal a denial of benefits from the Veterans Administration. It's an average delay of 1,448 days, um, which we believe is simply too long. And so we're handling that case with Williams and Connolly and the American College of Trial Lawyers. Um, Those are colleagues of mine in Atlanta. I'm very proud that we're trying to achieve some systemic change for veterans.
0: I feel like, merits aside, a really big lesson of what you've been saying and what we hear a lot is Access to justice means access yes. and process. Yes. And not all of our pro bono clients have meritorious cases or are gonna result in what we think of as a win. Right. But because we are able to give them representation, the process has been fair. They have had an advocate. And I think time and again, you hear from pro bono clients, even if the outcome wasn't what we would think of as right, right a victory,
1: Right.
0: The, they felt heard, and mm-hmm. they felt that the process was fair. That's right. Um, and that's, I think, a big part of promoting and bringing about access to justice. It doesn't always mean access to a victory. Right, it doesn't. <laughs> but it means a fair process that's right. for all of us, not just those you know, in the top 1%. I completely um, agree, like, and, and
1: I will say that you know, back when I used to be a public defender, we used to have a, a saying that, if you haven't lost more cases than you've won, then you haven't tried enough cases, and it's really true. You're going to lose cases as a public defender, but that's okay because you're giving your client his his or her day in court. And um, you know, sometimes you can go to trial. You might lose a case and still end up with a better sentence than the original plea offer. So we call that a, a public defender victory.
0: Sure. Or you reach a good settlement. Or there's yeah, a lot of ways. A lot we, of things can. Happen. There's a lot of ways we can help, and I think sometimes for. Our pro bono lawyers, they really do want the rainbow, the puppies, the happy outcome, the wonderful ending, the clemency grants. And I think doesn't always happen, so we have to manage expectations, but knowing that you've helped someone navigate this sometimes very unfair <laughs> or unbalanced right. process um, can be vitally important. And right. so I like to understand that as, yes. as a win as well, even if it's a win of a different kind. Right. Um, so what's on the horizon? Do you have any goals, short-term or long-term, for the program?
1: Great idea, a uh, great question. I'm, you know, I'm really always trying to uh, pursue new areas One of the things that we've been working on, like a lot of big law firms, is partnering with corporate clients. We're seeing more and more of our corporate clients wanting to collaborate with us. Um, And that's really been a great model because obviously these corporate clients have great legal talent in their in-house departments, and these are great lawyers who wanna do pro bono, and they really kind of rely on us to kind of identify opportunities, to partner with them. It's a great way to get to know them and for them to get to know us. so it, it's really can really strengthen those relationships, which is great. So I'm focused on that and then I'm also focused on international pro bono. Um, you know it's harder because we have offices and countries with different legal systems. It's fairly straightforward in our London office because it's sort of the same common law system, but in many of our offices it's just completely different. and identifying, You know, pro bono opportunities in Singapore is obviously a lot different from identifying them in in D.C. or Atlanta. And yet many of my international colleagues want to do pro bono. And it's it's sort of figuring out um, ways that I can get them involved. Uh, We've begun, for actually a number of years now, we've been working with um, IRAP, International Refugee Assistance Project, and that's a way that I've been able to get some international um, attorneys involved, which has been great but I'm currently, and we work with trust law, which is great, um, but I'm currently just really focused on trying to expand our international pro bono work.
0: Global, partnering with clients, two big topics for us, so yes. we'll have you back. We'll have to deep dive Absolutely. into those. Those could be their own
1: separate episode. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. Um, so who's your pro bono role model?
1: Great question. I've already mentioned Professor Ogletree. Yep. Um, He's he's a role model for sure. Um, also, my I have a few. Yeah, that's okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Bring them. We okay. love it.
1: Yeah, uh, my previous boss, Paul DeWolf, at the Maryland Office of the Public Defender. He was my boss in Rockville, and um, I just learned a ton from him. He's really dedicated his whole career to public defense. And I can I'll never forget my very first jury trial. We had a kind of an informal policy that you had to get a second chair for your when you weren't that experienced. And so I was just kind of walking around the office, we'd be my second chair, and and Paul volunteered to be my second chair. So it was super nerve (laughs) wracking to have your boss as your second chair. Um, But he gave such helpful advice and was just great. And um, he's really, what I was saying before about really trying to help a person who's a drug addict with treatment, he really led the charge on taking a holistic approach, bringing in social workers, um, and people like that to address the client's other needs, which I think is really so important, and it was just really a great example. Um, A third person is the president of the Southern Center for Human Rights, Steve Bright. Um, I've gotten to know Steve over the years because King & Spalding, particularly our Atlanta office, um, we do a lot of work um, with the Southern Center, We've had someone on the board there for a while and, first of all, I think they're such a wonderful organization, just absolutely great the work they're doing. Uh, But secondly, Steve in particular is really an inspiration to me, the way that he just doesn't back down, the way that he fights for his clients, and the way that he recognizes their humanity. Every year I go to the Southern Center dinner and it's, it's typical for the Southern Center to have a client speak And they'll get up there and they'll talk about all the great work that that the Southern Center has done for them. But you really hear the depth of their relationship with Steve, how much Steve cares about them. And it goes back to what I was saying before about treating every pro bono client as a person. And Steve, I mean, he's really, again, shown such a tremendous example um, in in doing that um, and and, and working um, the way that he does. As I know you know, he had a recent victory in the Supreme Court, uh, which I was really happy to hear about. And then finally, um, last but not least, Brian Stevenson is also a hero of mine. I haven't had the pleasure to meet him yet, although I hope to at some point, um, but he's an inspiration as well. Um, if anyone out there has not read his book or listened to his TED Talk, uh, please do. Um, again, we are kind of building on a theme here, but, but he's really... I've heard him speak a number of times, and he's really stood up for the fact that, that clients are redeemable, and I uh, have a particular interest in juvenile justice issues, and Brian has played and, and will continue to play a leadership role in that area, which I think is really inspirational.
0: Yeah, I think the book is Just Mercy.
1: Just Mercy, We yes. recommended
0: it as one of our summer readings uh, a few summers ago, I think. And it's a it's great, great read, it's a great read. I think, are they making it into a movie? I heard. I think. Yeah, I didn't yeah. hear who's
1: going to play Brian Stevenson yet.
0: Mm. Let's play that game, right? Cast, cast that famous <laughs> person. So let's end with this, Josh. If you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about access to justice?
1: This is a great question, there's a lot I could choose. But I think if I could change one thing, it would be enacting a civil Gideon, um, guaranteeing the indigent a right to counsel in civil cases.
0: So that might be a newsflash for some listeners right there, that there is no right to counsel in civil matters. A lot of people
1: don't realize that. And, you know, these are cases where people are facing things like losing custody of their children, eviction, deportation, I mean, really critical things. And I'll never forget the first time I went to landlord-tenant court in D.C. They do a roll call in the beginning, and you just... I was shocked by how many tenants facing eviction were there without a lawyer. And, we, you know, we're there. I was representing a client. There's great organizations like Bread for the City and Legal Aid that are doing that work. But they, 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 they're they trying to stem the tide. The D.C. Bar Pro Bono Center has a self-help clinic there. They answer questions. But... It's just, it's it's certainly, you know, a civil Gideon would require a lot of resources, but to me it would be absolutely worth it, the ability to affect so many citizens' lives. So I really hope that I, I get to see that day.
0: Well, that's a perfect note to end on. So Josh, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a
1: pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to our discussion with Josh Toll. And special thanks to Josh for his time and sharing his expertise with us. Additional episodes of the Pro Bono Happy Hour can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about the Pro Bono Institute, visit our website at probonoinst.org. Want to learn more about the world of in-house pro bono? Check out the PBI Podcast Network's new feed. It's called CLO and Pro Bono Series. CLO stands for Chief Legal Officer. The program explores the world of in-house pro bono at corporate legal departments. Links to the program can be found on our website. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.